listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com. Amen. Good morning. Go ahead and take your seats. Welcome once again to Whitefields Community Church. We're so glad that you are worshiping with us this Sunday. Please open with me in your Bibles to 1 Peter. That's 1 Peter. So Peter wrote two letters, 1 and 2 Peter. If you're looking for them in your Bible, they're in between Hebrews. It's a bigger book in your New Testament and Revelation. So in between Hebrews and Revelation, it goes Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. So that's where we're at. Hebrews, James, 1 Peter. If you get to Revelation, you went too far. And you can open up in your Bible. We'll also have the verses here on the screen behind me, but we'd love for you to follow along and engage with the text as we study. And let's begin this morning by reading our text, which comes from 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 1 through 6. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants long for the pure spiritual milk, that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in scripture, behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. This is God's word. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word, and we ask this morning, Lord, give us uh, receptive hearts. Lord, give us an eagerness and a passion. Help us, Lord, to take in these words and digest them. Lord, we pray that they would nourish us in our spirits, in our minds, in our hearts. Lord, do your work in us, we ask, as we study your word. Lord, would you give us ears to hear and hearts to receive what you would speak to us today. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen. Currently, we're in a series where we're studying through the letters of First and Second Peter. It's called Pilgrim's Progress. And so today we pick up that study here in chapter two. We've just been studying through the book, you know, verse by verse. And Today we're probably going to get through verse 12. That's the plan at least. I think we will. So let's uh, dive right in. You know, Maya Angelou, she said this. She famously said, The ache for home lives in all of us. The ache for home lives in all of us. If you think about it, it's kind of a weird thing to say, right? Because for the majority of us, we have a place to live. So if you have a place to live, then why would she say that in all of us, there is an ache and that we cannot shake. There's an ache for home. Well, the reason is because this uh, desire for home is, is more than just the desire for a physical place to live. The desire for home is really, it's a concept, it's an idea, this idea of home. Home represents certain things to us, that word does, right? It represents security, it represents stability, it represents belonging, it represents identity. And what Maya Angelou was saying is this, that every one of us, every person in the world is homesick. But we're homesick for a home that we've never been to before. And not only that, but I would go one step further and say this. The truth is, there is no place in this world that will ever fully satisfy that homesickness that we feel. That ache we cannot shake. See, because this desire for home is more than just, again, it's more than just a desire for a physical structure to live in. 
The desire for home is the desire for a place where we can truly rest, a place where we can truly be accepted and truly be loved, truly belong, truly have lasting and true security. And this is one of the great themes of Peter's letters, by the way, is this idea of home. And that the promise of the gospel is that whereas we will never find that sense of home here on this earth, the promise of the gospel, the great hope that we have in Jesus Christ is that because of who he is and what he did for us on the cross, in his life, in his death, in his resurrection, because of that, one day through him, we will get to go home. We will get to go to our true home, the place that our hearts long for deep down. And Peter reminds us, this world is not that place. This world is not our home. He says we are sojourners in this world. A sojourner, that's somebody who's traveling, somebody who's passing through. This is not our final station. This is not our destination. We're not home yet. But one day, through Jesus, the hope of the gospel is that God will take us home. So how many of you, maybe you have a, a place that you would say, it's my home away from home. So maybe you grew up somewhere else than where you live right now, or maybe you went away for college, and, and sometimes when you go back home, or maybe you have family members in a different place in the country, or maybe even a different part of the world. And so you can travel across the country, thousands of miles, you can travel across the world, and when you arrive there, it's not home, but it feels like home. It's a close second, right? It's a place where you're loved, you're accepted, where people are waiting for you, and they're waiting for you, and they welcome you in, and you can be at home in that place. It's not your home, but when you travel there, you're not a tourist either, right? So it's a home away from home. Well, here in 1 Peter chapter 2, what Peter is reminding us, he's saying, though this world is not your home, God has provided for us a home away from home, a home away from home. And in this home away from home, we get to experience the feelings, the sights, the sounds, the tastes of what home will be like, our ultimate home. We get to experience some of it here and now in this home away from home. Throughout this section, Peter uses a metaphor. It's a metaphor of a building being built, a building being erected. And this building, this house that he's describing, it's both something that we are a part of and something that we get to come into. So we get to experience and be part of it, and we also get to be part of building it and being part of the structure. Peter's essentially telling us this. He's saying this. Once you become a Christian, what do you do next? Well, here's what you do next. After you've put your faith and trust in the gospel, the next thing for you to do is to become part of what God is building. Become part of what God is building. This structure, this temple, this home away from home that God is building. And I'll just tell you what it is. It's the church, the gathered body of believers, of disciples of Jesus, the church. And here's what Peter tells us about what the church is and what the church is meant to be. Four things. He says this, the church is a place to grow, it's a place to grow, it's a place to serve God, it's a place to belong, and it's a place to welcome others. And then finally, and most importantly, he talks to us about the foundation, our foundation, the foundation of this whole structure, which is, of course, Jesus. So let's talk about these things as we work our way through this text, verse by verse. First of all, the church, this building, this structure that God is building, this home away from home, what is it? It is, number one, it is a place to grow. In chapter 1, Peter tells us that through Jesus, we've been born again. Now here in chapter 2, he continues that metaphor and he says, now that you've been born again through faith in Jesus, through hope in the gospel, now what are you? He says, well, you're, now that you've been born again, you're like a newborn baby. 
You're like a newborn baby. You know, I remember when we brought our first child home from the hospital there, you know, we, uh, we brought him home. You know, his eyes were still like not able to focus. He's kind of cross-eyed and we brought him in that carrier. We're brand new parents, you know, kind of like who in the world let us take this baby home? Like nobody should have allowed this. So we take this baby to our apartment. We lived in an apartment at that time and we, you know, showed him around to every room, which didn't take very long because it wasn't a very big apartment. And then we set him down. I remember he's still in his like car carrier thing. We're like, well, what do, you, what do we do now, <laughs> right? Well, it's, it's not that hard, right? Because babies, when they're small, they don't do very much. They just sleep and they eat because a newborn baby has one job. Their one job is to grow. That's it. That's your job, right? And so what Peter's saying is this. Once you become a Christian, once you've been born again, once you're a newborn babe, here's what your job is. Here's the next thing to focus on. The next thing to do is grow. Grow in the knowledge of him. Grow in the knowledge of, the will, of his will for your life. Grow in faith. Grow in relationship with him. Grow in being equipped to do his work in the world. So how do we grow? Well, Peter shows us two ways. Number one, we grow through the word of God. And number two, we grow together, not in isolation. So we grow through the word of God and we grow together, not in isolation. Let's talk about the first of those. You grow through the word of God. Peter calls the word of God, he calls it the pure spiritual milk. The scriptures that we have, the revealed will of God and and the revealed revelation of who God is. He calls it pure spiritual milk. What does milk do for a baby? It nourishes them. It feeds our minds. For us, it guides our thinking. It changes our hearts. See, for a baby, milk is not an optional thing. It's not a take it or leave it kind of thing. They need it. It's essential in order to grow. And the same is true for me and for you. You will not grow without a steady diet of the Word of God. You will not grow without a steady diet of the Word of God. And by the way, that's why here at Whitefields, we're so focused on the scriptures, on studying through books of the Bible. We're not here to give you tips and strategies for how to have your best life now. This isn't a self-help talk. This is, let's get into the Word of God and let's go into it and let's just receive that spiritual milk. Elsewhere, God's word is described in the same kind of metaphors that describe food, right? So sometimes it's described as bread. Other times it's described as meat. In some places it's described as honey, right? These are all metaphors that speak of eating, consuming a food, right? So the prophet Jeremiah, he said this. He said, I found your words and I ate them and they were to me the joy and rejoicing of my heart. I love that. And all of these metaphors, by the way, they refer to the word of God as something we eat, something we consume, something we devour. So in order to grow, it matters what you eat. It matters what you eat. It's interesting that the Bible uses this terminology, I think, because nowadays we use this same terminology, don't we, of consuming media, right? So we use the same terminology word to describe that that's word described how we interact with the word of God nowadays in our popular culture this is the word the terminology we use to describe how we consume content right we don't just read content online we consume content online we consume video content Netflix YouTube Spotify we consume these things we don't just watch them or listen to them I just think that wording is interesting like food we take it in and we digest it And like food, what you consume affects your health, doesn't it? It affects your health. It matters what kind of content you are consuming. In order to grow, you need a steady diet of the pure milk 
of God's word. So it matters what you eat, but it also matters how you eat it. How you eat it also matters. Peter ends, uh, ended chapter one that we looked at last week by telling us about how good and incredible God's word is. But now he jumps in in chapter two and he says, therefore, because it is so good, because it's so incredible, here's how you should receive it. Here's how you should receive it. And here's what he says in verse one and the first part of verse two. He says, so Put away all malice and deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. And like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk so that by it you may grow up. So the attitude with which we approach God's word matters. It matters very much. We are to come to God's word honestly. We're to come to God's word humbly. We come to it willing to let it examine us and willing to let it speak to us. We allow it to guide our thinking and correct us where necessary. You know, I think this idea of food, right? Some things are easy to swallow and some things are hard to swallow. And as we come to God's word, there might be some parts of it that you find hard to swallow. There might be some parts of it that you have to chew more than you have to chew on others, right? You have to really dig in and spend some time. What does this mean? How does this apply? So we come in that way. We come with open minds, not with our minds made up about what we already think and what we're going to believe. We don't read the Bible through the lens of what we already think, but we let the Bible become the lens through which we understand everything else. See, we want to be malleable, right? We want to be formable. We want to be teachable people as opposed to a word that the Bible uses, this word stiff-necked. We don't want to do that. We don't want to be stubborn people. So we, what do we do? We put away hypocrisy. We come ready to repent, ready to change direction as God, you know, gives us direction and tells us areas of our lives where he wants us to go in a certain way. And the whole point of this, Peter tells us, is that we would grow up. That's what he says. The point is so that you would grow up. See, it's cute when a baby is selfish or stubborn. I always say, oh, look, you know, look at our baby. She's being stubborn, just like her mom. No, I'm just, just kidding. I don't, I don't say that. Don't tell my wife that, please. <laughs> anyway, uh, but, you know, so you say, oh, the baby's so cute when they're, uh, when they're little and they're, uh, you know, so stubborn and they're so, you know, uh, you know doing all these things. But, but when you're 30 years old, right, and, and you're still stubborn and selfish and malicious and hypocritical, it's not cute anymore, is it, right? And so we come to God's word humbly. And we come to God's word honestly. And we should also come to God's word eagerly. Man, if you've ever seen a little baby eat, right, they're not like passive about it. They're all in. They're really excited about it, right? I remember my kids, they used to forget to breathe, right? Like they'd be like, oh, turning purple, right? And they'd be like, oh, they'd come back up for air and then they'd dive back in because they were so eager to, to eat. And I love that picture. He says that is how we should desire the word of God, right? Like as much as a little newborn baby likes to eat, that should be your attitude and your approach to the word of God. Eager, expectant, focused, passionate, right? And, and so that excitement, that expectancy, that hunger, that focus and passion is how Peter encourages us to receive the word of God so that by it, we can grow. So we're not approaching it passively, but we are actively pursuing it and consuming it, interacting with it and responding to it. The Psalms, the psalmist, he talks about this. He talks about meditating on the word of God. It's an interesting phrase because we know that right nowadays, meditation is, is very popular in our 
society here. But the meditation that's popular a lot of times is this Eastern concept of meditation. You know, so the, the Eastern religions have this concept of meditation, which is all about emptying your mind. Whereas the biblical idea of meditation is just the opposite of that. It's about filling your mind and engaging with your mind with the word of God. So Peter ends verse 3 by saying this, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. I love that song that we sang. I hope you guys did too. But uh, he's continuing this metaphor here of eating and consuming. See, it's one thing to eat because you know it's good for you, but it's another thing to eat because you've tasted something that's so good that you want more of it. This week, my wife accidentally bought some vegan breakfast sausages. And uh, so I realized that they were vegan. She didn't, re you know, she didn't realize that they were vegan because it was like in small letters, which should be, should be against the rules, right? You shouldn't be able to trick people into eating vegan sausages. So anyway, I realized they were vegan when I was cooking them and they were just falling apart, right? So as I'm eating these sausages and uh, I just had to keep reminding myself that this is good for me. This is good for me. I'm not enjoying it, but it's good for me. And... Um, I was, I was just forcing myself to choke it down. See, eating a lot of kale, for example, will make you live longer, but you will hate your life. So it's, a, it's like a balance, right? You have to decide. See, it's one thing to eat because it's good for you, but it's another thing to eat because you've tasted something that's so good that you want more of it. See, that's what Peter wants us to know. When you come to God's word, it's not like eating your vegetables when you were a kid because you're supposed to, because mom says you have to. No, the psalmist says in Psalm 119, how sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. In Psalm 34, like the song we sang, taste and see that the Lord is good. What is he doing? He's appealing to our senses. He's talking about the experience of God in our lives. It's not just about filling your mind with knowledge and information so you can win at Bible trivia. No, it's about encountering and experiencing God and drawing near to him so we can know him. Not just know about him, but to know him personally, experientially. So it matters what you eat. It matters how you eat it. But there's another thing. It also matters who you eat it with. It matters what you eat, how you eat, but also who you eat it with. The second thing Peter wants us to know about growth, not only do you grow through the word of God, but you grow together, not in isolation. Together, not in isolation. Starting in verse 4, Peter switches metaphors. He's been using this metaphor of a newborn baby growing. Now he switches metaphors, and he starts talking about a house that is being built and constructed. He says in verse 5, You yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house. And each of us, right, as individual stones, we're being brought together to build something that is bigger and better than just our individual selves. Bigger and better than anything that we could ever be on our own by ourselves. So I, I have a brick here. I, uh, I found this in my yard. Actually, I've known this was in my yard since I bought my house. It kind of came with the house. It was there when I bought it previous owner left it there and it's just been sitting in my backyard and it doesn't really do anything right it doesn't have a purpose it's just a solitary brick hanging out by itself and I was thinking about this yesterday what can you do with a brick right like with a single solitary brick I was thinking the only thing that came to mind is like to do some damage right like I could throw this through a car window I could throw it uh at somebody, I could punch somebody with it, right? And, and here's my point. Uh, 
with one brick, you can do a lot of damage. That's kind of what you do with a solitary brick. You can do a lot of damage. On the other hand, though, if you uh, take a look around this building, what is this building mostly constructed of? Bricks, right? And so on the one hand, a single brick can do a lot of damage, but a lot of, and, and also like a bunch of random bricks just strewn out all over the place, they don't do a lot of good either. But together, taken with a master architect, taking them in his hands, he can use those bricks, bring them together and build something glorious and useful as they come together. Something that has, gives, has great purpose, that gives shelter, that gives security, that's a blessing to many. And so the church is a place to grow because we grow together, not in isolation. So think about, you know, one of these individual bricks in the wall, any of these walls, you know, think about one individual brick. The reason it can stand so high and for so long where it does is why? Because it is being held up and supported by a whole bunch of other bricks. Additionally, there are other bricks on top of it that it is holding up and supporting as it's getting under them and holding them up. See, here's the thing. You can't be a building by yourself right? You can't be a building by yourself. You can't be a wall by yourself. You're, you're one stone. You're one brick. But here's, here's the good news. God wants to bring you into something. He wants to make you into something that is bigger than just your individual self, that is better than just your individual self. He wants to bring you into what he is building. It's a house where you can grow, it's a house that will be a refuge and a shelter and a blessing to others. It will be a place where God is honored and worshiped. It will be a place to invite others to come and meet God and be part of this building themselves. See, another picture that the Bible uses to describe what the church is meant to be is that of a body. And just imagine that picture. No one part of the body can exist apart from the other parts of the body. In order for one part of the body to be healthy, it needs to be supported by other systems and other parts of the body, right? Your pinky toe needs your lungs and it needs your heart and it needs your liver. And the same is true of you. In order for you to grow, in order for you to be spiritually healthy, you need to be connected to the body. You need what other people in the body have to give. You can't grow, you can't be healthy in isolation. You need to be connected to community and to the body. This is why, of course, here at Whitefields, we encourage everyone in our church to be in a community group. Here's why. Because you need a place where you are known. You need a place where you can be prayed for. You need a place where when you don't show up, somebody notices. Right? You need a place where you can ask your questions and you can share your struggles and you can bless others with the things that God has given you. You need people who can speak God's truth into your life, who can speak your true name over you. And you need also people who can sometimes ask difficult and challenging questions of you. See, that picture of a building and you being a brick in the building, it also means that when you're missing, there's a hole. There's a hole when you're missing. It isn't that you don't matter and you're just another brick in the wall. No, you're a brick in the wall. And when you're missing, there's a hole. The whole thing is weaker because of that. And so for others to be strong, you are needed just as you need them in order to be strong yourself. 
See, specifically though, Peter isn't just referring to any building that might exist. Specifically, he is drawing a parallel between us and what God is building through his people today and the temple that existed in Jerusalem. And he's saying this, that we, the people of God, are the true temple of God, the true temple of God. So I got to visit Jerusalem this year, and, um, and I have to go back, and I'll tell you why. So I went to see the Western Wall, right? The Western Wall is the only remaining part of the temple that was standing in the time of Jesus, and that temple was standing also at the time when Peter wrote this letter. Just six to seven years after he wrote this letter, it would be destroyed by the Romans, this one wall being the only part that's still standing. So you can still see the Western Wall. You know, it's over 2,000 years old today. And it's, it's really incredible. When you go and you, you check out this thing, these stones, they're the size of, of a car, right? Each stone is like the size of a car. And you, they're, they're fit so tightly together that you cannot even put a single sheet of paper between these stones. That's how, how you know, precisely they were cut and quarried. But the reason I have to go back to Jerusalem, and by the way, I would love for you to come with me. We're going to try and probably go in uh, 2021, I think. Yeah, 2021, that's right. So plan on that, start saving your money. I'd love for you to go. But here's the reason I need to go back, because there's one thing that I wanted to see that I didn't get to see. It's there in Jerusalem. It's called Zedekiah's Tunnels. And what it is, it's also called Solomon's Quarry. And that is the place where they quarried, where they got the stones that they used to build the temple. Now, here's what's so interesting about it. It's actually underground, underneath the old city of Jerusalem. The entrance to it's just right on the edge of the city. You go down, and, and that is the place where they got these massive stones that they used to build the temple. But here's what's really interesting. In, in 1 Kings chapter 6, we read about the construction of the temple in the time of Solomon. And here's what it says. It says that they were working in the quarry, and there underground in the quarry, they cut all the stones to size in the quarry so that up on the temple mount, as they assembled the structure, there would be no sound of hammers chiseling. They didn't want any of that. It was a holy site. So they prepared every stone in the quarry and then brought them and slid them into place. And again, they fit so closely together, you can't even put a single sheet of paper between them. And here's what's so crazy. They were all shaped and, and chiseled by hand. But here's the thing. Remember that. Remember this, this idea. And here's the other thing. There was no mortar. There's no mortar in the temple, right? They didn't use any glue to stick these rocks together. They're just so precisely cut that they stick together. So Peter is comparing us to these stones that were used to build the temple. And these stones, again, that were used to build the temple, they were quarried by hand. So here's what I want you to think about. Do you think that as they, quarried, as they shaped them and chiseled them by hand, do you think there were any rough edges on any of those stones? I'm guessing there were. There were probably some rough edges. So imagine these stones, and as they're being slid into place or being dropped into place, what's happening to those rough edges? Those rough edges of the one stone are knocking against the rough edges of another stone and they're being smoothed out, aren't they? They're knocking off each other's rough edges as they bump into each other. Do you guys get where I'm going with this, right? I have some rough edges, I'll be honest with you. I'm guessing that you do too. You don't have to raise your hand, right? I'm guessing that you have some rough edges. We all have rough edges. One of the ways that God shapes us, one of the ways that he, he smooths us out and knocks off those rough edges is by us being in community with each other and my rough edges bumping up and rubbing against your rough edges. 
And as that happens, that's one of the ways that as we're in close connection with each other, maybe somebody rubs you the wrong way. Their rough edges are rubbing up against your rough edges. And what happens as we are in community, as we're bumping up against each other, as we're having, may I even say, conflicts with each other, that's one of the ways that God smooths us out and makes us and shapes us into the people he wants us to be. See, here's the thing. So many of us, our, our immediate tendency, whenever there's rough edges on somebody else that rub us the wrong way, our immediate tendency is to bail, is to, is to bolt, right? We're gonna jet, we're out of here. I don't need this in my life. So there's a problem and I take off, right? I leave and I go. If there's a conflict, I leave. That's how I deal with it. But here's the deal. If you do that, if you do that, you will miss out on the important work that God is doing of using other people's rough edges to shape you and your rough edges to shape them. I got to implore you guys, don't bail on this stuff. This is the important work of God that takes place in community. And for that to happen, what, what we need is to be committed to each other, committed to growing together. So we grow together, not in isolation. I'm going to give you some homework because there's so much to talk about on this subject. We don't have time to look at this. I want you to write this down, read it, consider it, study it later. Here it is. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 11 through 18. Ephesians 4, 11 to 18. In these verses, Paul the Apostle used a similar picture in which he's talking about in beautiful detail how the people of God grow together. Okay, so the church is a building that is a place to grow. We grow through the word of God. We grow together, not in isolation. Uh, but there's another important factor in growth, isn't it? It's not just uh, you know, receiving nourishment, but it's also exercise. We need exercise. That brings us to our next point, which is this. This thing that God is building, this church that he is building, it is a place to serve God, a place to serve God. Not only are we together a temple, but verse five tells us that we are also a priesthood. He says that we've been given a ministry to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In the Old Testament, the people had a temple. In the New Testament, the people are the temple. In the Old Testament, the people had a priesthood. In the New Testament, the people are the priesthood. And what does he say that priests do? They offer spiritual sacrifices. And what this means, guys, it means this. You and me, all of us, we are in the ministry. It means that God has called us to be his representatives and to minister to other people. You know, one of the jobs, again, of priests is to offer sacrifices. Now, we know in the book of Hebrews, it says that Jesus, our great high priest, entered into the Holy of Holies and offered himself the great and ultimate sacrifice to atone for our sins once and for all. And what that means is that we don't make sacrifices to atone for our sins. So what kind of sacrifices do we make? Actually, there's a whole lot about that in the New Testament. You guys are going to look at this in your community group. But let me run you through a few of these sacrifices that we are called to make as a holy priesthood. Hebrews 13 talks about the sacrifice of praise. So when we're singing, this isn't just a sing-along, right? This is the sacrifice of praise, the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. In Romans chapter 12, we're encouraged to present our bodies as a living sacrifice, Right? The way that we live our lives as we give our, all of ourselves over to God. Also in Hebrews 13, verse 16, it says that good works are a sacrifice that is pleasing to God. So when you do good for other people, that, is, that can be an act of service, an act of worship to God, something that pleases Him. 
Here's an interesting one. In Philippians chapter four, we're told that when we give financially to the work of God, that is a spiritual sacrifice, a spiritual sacrifice. In Romans chapter 15, Paul talks about his work of evangelism and preaching the gospel as pre preparing a sacrifice unto God. So the church is a place to serve God. You know, here at Whitefields, we not only encourage everybody to join a group, like a community group, we also encourage all of you to join a team. Here's why. Because we believe that serving is an essential element of growth. That you cannot grow, you will not grow as you could unless you are serving God in some way. Every ministry in this church, whether it's setting up chairs, whether it's teaching kids, whether it's administration, it's part of the work of preaching the gospel and making disciples. And we would love for you to get involved. Additionally, you know, as a church, we are able to do so much more together than any one of us would be able to do apart from each other. We're about to kick off Project Greatest Gift in just two weeks' time, in November. For years, we have been ministering to hundreds of families in Northern Colorado who are in real need, both at Christmas time and back to school time. And as we serve them, we are serving God and we can accomplish so much more together than on our own. So the church is a place to serve God. It's also a place to belong. Peter says this in verses nine and 10. He says, you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are the people of God. What Peter is saying is that we, together, as the people of God, as Christians, we are a new nation. We have a new identity. People from all the nations of the world, we come together and we belong together with a new identity and sense of belonging. Remember, Peter called them at the beginning of this letter, he called them scattered strangers, scattered strangers. The Christians were scattered throughout all the communities, all the towns on earth, living as minority groups in each of those towns. And they were considered strange. They were outliers, right? They were different by those who they lived amongst because they had different values. They had different customs. The same is true for us. But Peter tells us, even though you are scattered strangers in the world, in Jesus, you have an identity. And among the people of God, you belong. You belong. This sense of identity is so desperately needed by people, I believe, in our society today, perhaps more than ever. You see, we are more connected digitally than we've ever been before in the history of the world. And yet, as a society, polls, statistics, everything shows that we're more lonely and more isolated than we've ever been before. And part of the reason for that is because here in the West, our society is characterized by radical individualism. Do you realize we live in the most individualistic society that has ever existed in the history of the world? That's not even an exaggeration. Okay, so we're so guarded, right? We're so worried about how close we let people, who knows what about us. We're so, you know, we're so, wor we, we worship our privacy. And as a result, we're so lonely and that loneliness is hurting us. Guys, you know this? Dysfunction thrives in isolation. Dysfunction thrives in isolation. The Bible describes sin as being like mold. You know how mold grows? It grows in the dark. But in contrast to our radical individualism, God has something better for you. He has something better. And here's what it is. It's a place to belong, a place to be known, a place where you aren't invisible. You know, as a result of our, our radical individualism, 
You know, I think that a lot of that has seeped into how we think about God, how we talk about God here in the West. Think about how many times you've heard people use this language. They talk about having a personal relationship with God. They say, receive Jesus as your personal Lord and Savior. Now, on the one hand, that's right and it's correct. There's something that needs to happen between you as an individual and between God that nobody else can do for you. But what it leads to also is it leads to this view that my relationship with God is, is something just between me and him and it's none of your business so you better stay out of it and mind your own business, right? It's none of your business. So, and I want to tell you that's not what we're called to in Jesus. We're called to something bigger than that, something better than that. I love this quote by Sinclair Ferguson. Here's what he says. We are not saved individually and then choose to join the church as if it were some club or support group. But Christ died for his people, and we are saved when by faith we become part of the people for whom Christ died. That's what Peter is describing here. In other words, God is saving us out of individualism. He's making us part of what he's building and what he's doing. Let's move on to the next point. It is a place to welcome others. In verse 11, Peter says, Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh which wage war against your soul. So he reminds us that even though we have a place to belong and this new community that God is building, we're still sojourners and exiles in this world. Even though we have a home away from home, this world is still not our home. So then, how should we live? How should we live? Because this is true. And here's the first thing. First of all, don't make a peace treaty with sin. Don't make a peace treaty with sin. Rather, wage war against those things that wage war against your soul. Why? Because those things will wreck you and destroy you. But there's another reason. Look at what he says in verse 12, the last verse of the section. Keep your conduct amongst the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. What Peter is telling us is that we need to remember that as sojourners, we are on assignment. We're on a mission. God has given us a mission. And we want to invite others to belong to this beautiful house that God is building. And therefore, we seek to live beautiful lives that will express to people who our God is and attract them to him. Right? We never want with our actions to give anyone an excuse not to listen to the good news about Jesus. Rather, we want to invite people, and we begin with how we live our lives. We want to invite people into this family that God is building, into this beautiful house that God is building. So therefore, we're purposeful with our actions, knowing that we want to care about how we are perceived by people on the outside, because we're people on a mission. And most importantly, I'll end by talking about our foundation. We're told in verse 4 that he is the living stone. It's kind of a weird combination of words, isn't it? I mean, a living stone, because usually when we use that word stone, we use it in regard to things, to describe things that are not alive, that don't move. We talk about, you know, somebody being stone cold dead, right? But Jesus is the living stone, and it's through him that we can become living stones. And we read about this in Ezekiel. God gives us this beautiful picture of what God does in our lives when he redeems us. He reaches in and takes out that heart of stone, that heart that is dead and hard, and he replaces it with a malleable, soft, sensitive heart of flesh that responds to him. See, the message of the gospel is that God took us when we were stone cold dead and he made us alive 
in Christ. Christianity isn't about making you a better person. It's about making dead people alive and then living unto Christ, getting a new heart. See, Jesus, just like every building has a foundation, in this metaphor of this home away from home, Peter wants us to understand that Jesus is the cornerstone. Everything stands or falls on him. In verse 6, he quotes from the prophet Isaiah, who prophesied that the Messiah would be the cornerstone. And it says this, whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. He will never let you down. Now in verse 7, here's what's interesting. Peter quotes from Psalm 122. Did you know this is the most quoted Old Testament verse in the entire New Testament? It's quoted more than any other verse from the Old Testament. This verse right here, Psalm 118, verse 22. The stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone. What's this verse talking about? Well, interestingly, it's talking about uh, the builders rejecting the cornerstone. What is this story? The story is actually not found in the Bible, but it was a common Jewish tradition, kind of like folklore. And we don't know if it's true or not. Could be or not. But it was common Jewish folklore and tradition. And here's the tradition that when they were building the temple, they brought all those stones out of the quarry and they set them there to begin to assemble them. There was one stone that was a different shape than all the other stones. It didn't fit in. It was different. And so the people, the builders there on the mount, they assumed that this must be a mistake, that somebody made an error. And so they took that stone and they rolled it down the hill into the Kidron Valley, which sits right underneath the, uh, the old city of Jerusalem. And they rolled it there basically to throw it away. And now, soon after that, they realized that the stone they had rejected was the cornerstone of the temple. And of course, they had to go bring it back. So that's the tradition. Now, interesting story. Why does it matter? Here's why. Because Jesus told us that that story is actually the story of him. It's actually about him. He told us that this psalm and this story is all about him. He said, just as Isaiah said that the Messiah would be the cornerstone, just as you know the tradition, right, that they threw out the cornerstone, that is what people will do with me. The most crucial person upon which everything stands or falls. In Luke chapter 20, Jesus explained that the story of the rejected cornerstone is the story of him. Just as the builders rejected it, there are some people who reject Jesus as their savior. And to do so is the worst mistake anyone could possibly make. Because without the cornerstone, whatever you build your life on, eventually it will collapse. In verse 8, Peter quotes from Isaiah who predicted that the Messiah wouldn't only be the cornerstone, but that some people would stumble over him. He would be a rock of offense. People would stumble over him. Why would anybody stumble over Jesus? Well, I'll tell you one reason. Because in order to receive the salvation that Jesus offers, you have to humble yourself and admit that you don't have it all together. You have to admit that you can't save yourself, that you're not good enough, and that you need God to intervene and to save you and show you mercy. And many people stumble over that point. They stumble over that. Because they say, hey, I'm a decent person. I'm not that bad. I believe in myself. But here's what Jesus said. I'll leave you with this. He said something really interesting in Luke 20. In Luke 20, verse 18, Jesus said this. First, he said, I am the cornerstone that Isaiah spoke of. But then he said this. Everyone who falls on me will be broken to pieces. But everyone upon, upon whom I fall will be scattered like dust. So either 
you will cast yourself upon Jesus as your Savior in brokenness and in humility, or he will fall upon you as your judge. Either you will cast yourself upon him as your Savior, or he will fall upon you as your judge. To cast yourself upon God's mercy requires humility. It requires a sense of brokenness, that God, I need mercy. I have fallen short. I need you to forgive me, to show me grace. So either you will cast yourself on Jesus in brokenness as your Savior, or he, the judge of all the earth, will fall upon you as judge. And if that happens, you will be scattered like dust. So may we be those who come to Jesus in brokenness, in humility. That's the prerequisite for receiving his grace. And may we be those who build our lives on the cornerstone of who he is, the firm foundation. I encourage you today, make him the cornerstone of your life. Build your life upon him until he comes to take you home. The good news of the gospel is that Jesus gave up his heavenly home in order to live and die for you so that his home could one day be your home. And until that day comes, may we be committed to this building that God is building, this home away from home, a place to grow, a place to serve, a place to belong, and a place to welcome others. Would you please stand with me and let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you have given us this home away from home. Lord, I pray that you would do your work in our lives through it. Lord, that we would be receptive to it. And Lord, may we build our lives upon you. Thank you that you are the cornerstone. Thank you, Lord, that if we stand upon you, if we build upon you, our lives will not collapse. They will be stable and secure and firm. So Lord, as we sing this last song, we just praise you because of who you are and what you've done. You've been listening to a message from Whitefields Community Church in Northern Colorado. For more information and audio content, visit us at whitefieldschurch.com.